Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. Thorpe is coming in, gold and a world record. Ian Thorpe, the birth of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. Ball in Test cricket in England for Shane Warne, and he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Yes! Australia have got it. Australia is back on the biggest stage. Welcome to this is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. Welcome to the show. As always, we're here for our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Well, today we're joined by an AFL number one draft pick who became a dual All-Australian, best and fairest winner and a captain. Brendan Goddard played 334 games for St Kilda and Essendon in a fantastic career spanning 16 seasons at the highest level. Fiercely driven and unapologetically intense, BJ left nothing on the field. Hello, Brendan. Thanks for joining us. Sammy, no problem. Thanks for having me. Where do we find you on this sunny Sunday, November afternoon? Yeah, with uh, not much doing today, actually. Just uh, on the way home from the golf course. So, uh, enjoying the fine weather and the ability to play golf again and live half a normal life. So, uh, it's been a kind of nice thing to just be able to get out of the house and do something that I obviously enjoy. So, yeah, just on my way home for golf. Nicely done. Well, we'll come back to the golf shortly because that's been a, a part of your life all the way through and, and now more so than ever. But you were raised about 160 kilometres uh, east of Melbourne there in the Latrobe Valley, I think a town called Glengarry, country Victoria. What was yeah. Brendan Goddard's childhood like? Uh, well, a lot different to what probably young kids uh, live their lives like now. So uh, you're, I think, I assume you're a little bit older than me, Sammy, but um, living in a country town... Uh, it was a little town, as you may mention, Glengarry. Uh, we had a main street with a, a post office, a general store, and a pub. I had a local school that I attended there, Glengarry Primary School. But uh, there wasn't a hell of a lot to do other than spend time outside playing sports. So um, my love for, for sports, all sports really, kind of eventuated from you know living in a small country town, and um, you know that's the only thing really. We, we really did. Is uh, and back in those days, obviously technology was less prevalent than it is now. So um, school holidays, in particular, if we weren't you know going on a family holiday occasionally, it was mum used to kick us out of the house, and it was made up of playing cricket, golf, football, any sport you can really think of, and then a bit of time spent on mate farms, doing farmy things, riding motorbikes, driving old beaten out cars through the paddocks, or going shooting and fishing and 
all those kind of things. So for the love outdoors, I was uh, I was in a, I was in a pretty good position as a young kid growing up in the country. One of the uh, one of the positives of being out in the country in the middle of nowhere. I noticed the word school didn't get a mention there. Did that get a look in at all? <laughs> school, yeah, I was actually a student in private school. Funny how it all changed. I got to, got to high school and my grades and the focus on schoolwork kind of dwindled and faded as I uh, as I started to, I guess, uh, probably succeed a little bit more in my chosen sport at that particular time. Football was number one, but cricket also, and basketball wasn't far behind those two so um yeah my love for school and my enjoyment for school and my grades kind of dwindled as i got a little bit older and no, that i jest of course and you mentioned sport that was always <laughs> a big part of uh your childhood that competitiveness that would become your trademarks uh well your trademark what were its origins was is it mostly siblings when it comes to people was that the case with you yeah well while well, you're yeah, older brother so um it was pretty influential in you know, my overall mindset as a kid growing up and he wasn't actually home admittingly a lot. A few people out there may know his background, so um, he's in a bit of trouble he, as a teenager and was in and out of uh, home and spending time in mate's house and eventually uh, moved out of home when he was, he was quite young, about 16, because um, he was just a troublemaker and he'd later on get into a bit of trouble, as some of you may know. So... From from early stages with my brother, and then and then when he wasn't around, I actually had a, a my close mates from primary school actually lived out on farms. So there wasn't one, we lived in the town itself, so we didn't live on land or anything. Um, we backed onto the local footy ground and footy club, the Glengarry Magpies, um, and tennis courts, netball courts. So my time was actually spent hanging around kids that were about three or four years older than me. So I got to a point when I reflect on it, is that the only way I could, you know play with these kids and play cricket, play football or basketball is literally just kind of, I was thrown in the deep end and I had to kind of fight fight tooth and nail just to be competitive with them. Otherwise, you know, kids that are three or four years older than you when you're talking 12, 13, 14, these kids are all 17 and whatever. There's a, there's a fair difference in size and maturity and all that kind of thing. So when I reflect upon it, I think it was, you know, I, I learned to be so competitive because I had to be because I didn't have any other choice just to, just to play with these kids and go to the cricket nets in school holidays. I used to, you know, I was frightened half the time because these kids, as I said, yeah. steaming and trying to kill me as a young kid as a 13-year-old in the cricket nets or on the footy field. I used to play three-on-three three inside 50. And, yeah, it was just it was just the way I just had I just had to be really fierce and competitive just to, just to hang around these kids and play with them. A man who would go on to become an AFL teammate of yours, Andrew McWalter, grew up in uh, nearby Terralgan. I think he said once that his first memory of you was playing against you in a basketball game. I think you're about 10, and um, he was watching you in a spat with your own teammates. <laughs> yeah, uh, he puts a bit of mail on that story, but I wouldn't put it past me as a 10, 10 or 12. I think it was under 12, 12 year olds, because. Uh, so Minnie and I, yeah, grew up a lot together, but uh, we ended up playing basketball with and cricket with one another, footy mainly against each other as a year younger than me. So to this day, we're best mates, but we grew up, uh, as, as you may mention, he was in trail when I was in Gary, so we were rivals there for a while. Um, and then, uh, yeah, that's one of his first memories of me, seeing a Brendan Goddard spraying his teammates in under 12s basketball. <laughs> you grew up a Carlton supporter, didn't you? Were, you? were you pretty passionate, or at least the family was? Yeah, so mum, my mum, uh, Patty, and her sister Christine, they were they were literally one-eyed, you know, Carlton supporters. Come down every game that was in Melbourne, drive down each weekend, um, you know, members, all that kind of thing for a long time. So, 
it was kind of natural for me to, I didn't really have any choice really. So I was brainwashed from a young age. Dad wasn't much of a footy follower, to be honest. He, uh, he was Geelong raised, the Goddards are from Geelong, um, predominantly anyway. So, um, I was, yeah, I was brainwashing the Carlton early days. So yeah, I, I was, I was a one-eyed Carlton supporter. I was, um, pretty passionate about it. Used to go there to most games that I could if I wasn't playing. So mainly Sunday games when I wasn't playing footy, um, on Saturdays as a, as a junior kid. So, yeah, loved it. I was a massive Anthony Kudafidis fan. Um, but, yeah, loved, loved all things Carlton back in the day. So I can't imagine the excitement um, skipping forward a few years and in the lead-up to the draft in 2002, the Blues had told you they'd take you with the number one pick. I think you'd even train with the club as part of the AIS AFL Academy scholarship program. I think you might have even stayed at the house of the recruiting manager yep. at the time, Shane O'Sullivan, as well. That's right, I did. So... Um through that period, AIS, and then knowing, knowing changes through junior levels when you start to play at a certain level and represent your footy at Vic, you know, Vic early days, it was, it was, there wasn't a Vic Metro Vic country and then the 12s and 15s, maybe, I think 15, maybe 16s was the first Vic country, Vic Metro kind of, so I got to know Shane a little bit through that, just uh, him in the background, keeping an eye on us. And then when it came to training with the club, chose Carlton, obviously, um, and then Shane, you know, thinking back on it now, it was probably a smart move by him <laughs> just to offer up a yeah, bet at his house. Uh, looking back on a potential number one draft pick staying here, I've already planted the seat. So very smart by him that, um, yeah, stayed at his house for a week, got to know his you know, family well. Um, and then, you know, ironically, come, you know, uh, what are you talking, 2002 draft, just 2002 season. Um, got number one, two picks. I'm in the conversation. Already had a relationship with them. Um, yeah, and every boy, boy's dream. Every every kid's dream to play for the team that they barracked their whole life. So it was all kind of coming to fruition until, for memory, I think you probably delve into this. You probably asked a question. I think for memory, it was about a month. You might know, have a better memory than I. But when the suspension got handed down to Carlton about losing draft picks being fine and all that because of the salary cap indiscretions, was it was it about a month before the draft? Oh, my memory is it was closer to the draft day, but I don't know the exact. Uh, regardless, it was it was really close, wasn't it? And yeah, it was it, really close. Yeah, it was obviously one of the biggest scandals in footy history, and Carlton were found guilty of salary cap that's breaches I've, and that, I've, I've those been, first I've two. Been a part of two of them. Yeah, that's right. Well, we'll come back to the second one. <laughs> both of them, you've uh, effectively walked into both of them, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think for memory, yeah, it was close. So it was always calm, and then um, Shane had kept me um, in communication with what was going on and all that kind of thing. And I still remember to this day, I was at my sister's house in Kew. Uh, it was living with my dad at the time, and they went home. I was home by myself, and I got a phone call from Shane the moment he walked out of the hearing with the AFL and however it went down. I think it was even in the courts or something that, you know, he, he's saying, mate, I just I rang you with bad news that we've lost our draft picks. So, yeah, yeah, so, I, I remember vividly. Yeah, so the Saints who had pick three ended up coming in and taking you with the number one overall pick, and um, Daniel Wells was taken at number two as well. So, on draft day at the tennis centre, as, as it was then, when your name was read out by the Saints with the number one pick, someone actually yelled out "Go Blues" <laughs> from the crowd. Um, that that wasn't Patty, was it? No, uh, it wasn't Patty. I, I'm pretty sure it wasn't Patty. 
We've talked about this before. I can't remember. I don't think it was her because I wouldn't have been too happy. And there would have been, uh, probably as you can imagine, a fair reaction for me if my mum was doing that on draft day after St. Kilda <laughs> just drafted me. So um, I actually I actually think her sister was there, Christine. So it might have been Sissy or Sissy as we call it. Uh, it may have been her. So, yeah, no, it wasn't mum. Regardless, it's a lot to process as a as a teenager. I mean, you would have had to get your head around it all pretty quickly. W- was it difficult? Yeah, it was because, like I said, it, I thought it was about a month out, but it, it happened so quick. It might have been close. It might have been like a week and a half, two weeks out. So yeah. to have your heart set on something, um, you know, again, fulfilling a dream, you know, it's just the start of the journey, really, when you look back on it being drafted. But um, it was kind of fulfilling a dream that you had your whole life. and. Uh, then for it to kind of get taken away from me, and then the things change so quickly, and yeah, it was, it was quite funny. But the, you know, St Kilda were on the phone to me the very next day. I think for memory too. So um, mm. Johnny Beveridge was on the phone, and and I think I've said this before, but Carlton told me they were going to take me at number one and Wellesley number two. So so we I'm pretty sure Wellesley was in the same boat. So we all knew, we knew the information. We knew it was going to happen, um, which I don't think happens too often, do they? Number one draft picks don't get told until closer to the date so yeah um yeah just so had it all kind of ripped away but but you know as soon as it happened or St Kilda then draft you and I was, I was at the club like the very next two days later or something the moment I walked in the club it was almost it was kind of weird it was forgotten about and the first time I played Carlton I ran it through my head a thousand times what I'd feel like what it would be like and then it wasn't kind of what I thought it would be my feelings for Carlton had kind of faded you know, and it wasn't as strong as I thought it would be. It was actually enjoyable beating Carlton for the first time. <laughs> You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. We're off and running with Brendan Goddard. So next, BJ's AFL journey gets started at the Saints. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, great to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. We're with former St Kilda and Essendon star Brendan Goddard. Well, BJ, you make your AFL debut in round four, 2003, against Richmond at Docklands. Now, you play 18 games in your debut year. But was there an element of, of difficulty with being with having that number one tag attached, like we see so often? Um, there, there was there, there wasn't a way. Like, I guess it's easier to probably do with it. Study because you haven't played a game yet. But you know, there's there's a it'd be worse now, I'd assume, because the microscope over younger kids and even the time they get identified starts a lot earlier than what I had to deal with. So. And they're a lot more, well, they're well equipped these days than the way I was with the training and all that that's put into them and the elite pathways. So um, it was at the start and there's a bit of hype, expectation around it. But again, the, the club, I felt through that, especially in my, probably my first three years, because I felt like my first year was, you know, solid. Yeah, it's, a, it's you, get a, you get a green light as such or a pass card or however you want to say it, that, you know, you're a young kid coming through. And I was 17 at the time for heart, well, three quarters of that year as well. Mm. So played as a 17-year-old and felt like I was progressing well. Second year, had the second year blues. Didn't go that well. Then the question marks came around. 
you know, St Kilda made the right decision. Is Brennan going to be the player that we thought he would be or that he, you know, promised almost? Um, and then there's a bit of self-doubt, but that's where the club was so good and the players, I felt that, you know, blocked out that noise and it wasn't it wasn't important what other people were saying outside the footy club. So, you know, to stay in what we used to call the St Kilda bubble, but, you know, to only listen to and trust the people that are, you know, inside these four walls, that's what's most important. And they did a terrific job. I was just any other player. They continually told me I was... And I felt that too. I, was, I felt like I was making great improvement. You know, my training and everything was going to these levels I'd never never been to before, but it just wasn't... Didn't feel like I could get over that hurdle of actually just performing in, on a week-to-week basis and in games. So um, there was... It was it, I guess there was a little bit of pressure at certain times and I've probably felt it a bit and like any young kid read, read all the headlines, read every article and some of the messaging. So I read this about you today and I hadn't read it. So I'd go out of my way to go and find it. Or if there was something on TV about me, I'd go out of my way to try and find it. Um, obviously learned to deal with those things differently as I got older, but yeah, it was, I think it's only natural for young kids to do that. But um, yeah, it was fair to say there's a little bit of pressure, but the club was really great with keeping me focused on what was important. What about on-field early days? Did you get sledged a lot just because you're the number one pick? Oh, yeah, yeah, relentlessly, every week. It wouldn't be a week to go, especially in those first three years where, you know, probably not so much the... Oh, no, that's a lie. First year was, was on for young and old. I tell a great story. Uh, mainly sports sports nights, that because uh, there's a few explicits in the head that the first time I ever played Brisbane up in Brisbane in their heyday in the early 2000s and the... And the yeah the sledging that I copped that day was just next level. So, um, and then through that second year, it was more of my third year. It was just, you're the worst number one draft pick we've ever seen. So they all, they all went down that path mainly. Yeah. Every week. And then, um, yeah, slowly died off as <laughs> the more I got, you know, got a little bit more confident and I gave it, started to give it a little bit back. And oh, there's actually a story in my first ever VFL game. It even started then before I even played an AFL game. Played a VFL yeah. game for uh, Springvale Scorpions down in Tassie. Um, and, you know, young Joey Montagna and I were down there. It was mainly just us two, I think. Uh, there weren't too many other, that core group of players playing that, that particular day. And we went out there, first ever senior game of footy. You'd never played against men before in a, in a proper game. So I was pretty nervous. We got off to a good start. Um, Half time. You know, brag a little bit. I had like 22 touches or something to half time, and um, Jason Cripps was playing for the opposition. And some people, a lot of people out there may not know, I actually had, was wearing number 18, and Jason Cripps got delisted. You know, before I got to the club, the you know the, yeah. the preseason or the off season before I arrived. So I took his number, wore number 18. Grant Thomas gave it to me. He didn't give me a choice. We had, a, we had a short conversation on draft day. He said, what number do you want? And I said, oh, you know, I used to wear number nine as a kid. So I was like, oh, is number nine available? And he's like, no, well, that's Fraser Gary. So you're not getting that. <laughs> so, he goes, so he goes, you're wearing number 18. And I was like, oh, all right. I thought I was choosing. And he's like, <laughs> I didn't say that. But he's like, yeah, number 18. And I didn't know at the time, but that was the number that Tomo wore as well. So, um, but anyway, got number 18. And then anyway, at after half time, I run out there in, down in Tassie and, and Jason Cripps comes, he's tagging me. But like he's belting the shit out, like you know, first game against men, belting the shit out of me. Like I've never, never had any attention like this ever before. I've kids tagging me before, but not like a grown man that 
you know, literally built like a brick shit house too. Um, anyway, he's belting the shit out of me, whacking me, stomping on my feet. All the tricks, all the old school tricks, belt me in the back of the arm. You know, I come in three quarter time. I've literally hadn't, I did not touch it for that quarter. So I had 22 to half time. I come in, I'm pretty sure I still had, I still had 22. And then I was chatting to Joey Montagna, which he's like, how are you going? I was like, mate, he's like, I'm struggling. Like, he's belting shit. I can't get away from him. He goes, oh, we'll just give a little bit back, like whack him or, you know, I was like, I can't, you know. He goes, I'll just spray him back. I said, what do I say to him? And Joey goes, thank him, thank him for your number. Thank him for his number. And I was like, oh, okay. So we run out there again. His first stoppage comes over, starts whacking me. I'm like, piss off, Cripper. Like, like, you know, stuffy, little arrogant prick, blah, blah. And as the ball was leaving, I said, oh, by the way, thanks for your number. And it was the worst decision I ever made all day. This, this Cripper, Cripper, no, no river liar, he... You know the raging bull that when they in like a cartoon when their eyes just light up and the you know the red the red drape falls down in front of him that's what it looked like he he was dead set out to kill me and I ran my my life dependent on it and he chased me no river lie I was shitting myself and then to and I literally had one more touch for that quarter so in the half of footy I touched it once and I thanked Jason Cripps for uh, his number and he literally wanted to kill me it was the worst decision I made <laughs> but oh. it was uh, it was quite funny. I'll have to try. And, and ironically, Jason Cripps was then my coach about a year and two years later, maybe. At yeah. the Saints was a backline coach. <laughs> we still laugh about it this day. You mentioned Grant Thomas there, though, as the senior coach. How was your relationship with him? Oh, awesome. Yeah, Tom, I've talked about it before. He's, he's, he's a confidant of mine. He's a, at that particular time, I was a 17 year old. He was, he was like a father figure to all of us. Um, now, I don't use that lightly. We obviously all love our dads, but through that time when we're at the footy club, we're, we're just young, you know, young men. So he was, in my opinion, he's the greatest man manager I've ever seen in football, I've been a part of. Um, and he had, a, he had a huge influence, not only us as footballers, but uh, us, as, us as young men. The responsibility of coaches of turning these young men into, or, you know, teenagers on a number of occasions into men is it's a huge responsibility and they have a huge impact on our lives. So mm. he's a, uh, he's a man I can't speak highly enough. He had you guys over to his house often, didn't he? Cooks a good steak, doesn't he, Tomo? Yeah. So no, yeah, he's got eight kids himself and he literally had an extended family of another, you know, a core group of us that not the younger guys, but you know, you're talking Aaron Hamill at the time, Nick Rewalt, Robert Harvey. So he would literally just, a thing of his was all about, you know, socialising, get, getting to know one another on a real personal level, but spending as much time as you can together socially. Mm. So um, our relationship and all that, and it flows into that football. So um, he would have us around for barbie. His thing was, yep, grab a beer and he'd cook the steaks. So, you know, drinking and having, you know, drinking sessions at his house back in the day, was a, it, it was a it was a prevalent thing because he, he, he saw that as a really important thing socially to to do that to, with one another. Isn't the word that he only knew how to cook a steak one way, didn't he? And if he didn't like medium rare, That's you're right. in trouble. The thing is, though, he'd always ask you. He'd go, if there was a small group or whatever, if there was a large group, he wouldn't ask. But if there was a few of us just going around to his house, then he'd be like, all right, how do you want it? you go, yeah, medium. Then you go, you go, yep, no worries. And he'd serve it on the dish and you cut it open, it was blue. And then... <laughs> You wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't argue with him, but you, you soon found out. That, yeah, that's his own one way. 
he's blue or practically it's probably not as extreme as what we thought when we were 17 18 um you know young kid you, you have your steak well done when you're young don't you, you know? yeah so you never know what the term blue meant but uh yep we soon found out it was only one way to tomo but he'd always ask but still serve it up one way so uh, under Grant, you, you played in a losing prelim in only your second year, a losing prelim in only your third year. There was a really nice blend of youth like you and Nick Del Sando, Luke Ball and the like, and then the experience in, you know, obviously Rob Harvey, Fraser Gehrig, Andrew Thompson. How do you look back on that period? Jeez, you, you, like it was almost the case in the latter end of your career at the Saints, you, you were close, just not close enough. Yeah. I think everyone's right when... The guys that have played in finals, we've been playing a grand folder when you're young. You just, I don't know, it's just, oh yeah, no, this is good. This will, this will happen again. This is, mm. yeah. I was, I was just running at that particular time of my career. I was, I was, just, I was still trying to cement my spot in the team in the 22, let alone you know a spot on the field. Because those days, if you start on the bench, you know you, you're literally you're the last four to get picked. These days, it's completely different. It depends on matchups and all that and. And there was games in, in my first and second year, I was, I was literally playing three or four minutes a game. Like, you know what I mean? I was literally like the 22nd or the 21st guy picked. Mm. Um, so I was just trying to cement my spot in the team and it was all just a bit of a world. And it was, um, it was unbelievable when I look back on the players that, you know, I was playing with and learning from every day and um, and the success we had. Looking back on it, geez, we had a pretty, pretty successful era from... You know, to what'd you say, two thousand four, all the way to you know, two thousand ten. Mm, mm. So were playing you, in what four four prelims. Yeah, yeah. And were you shocked when Thomas was sacked though in two thousand six? Given you'd actually played finals that year, you did lose the elimination final. I think you had a, quite a few injuries on the night in the defeat to Melbourne. You know, as a relatively young player, still, were you were you stunned by that? Oh yeah, completely shocked. One because of the relationship we had with him and how much we you know, majority of us loved this, loved him, sorry. Um, but again, it was like, I remember vividly, we were around at, I lived at Nick Dale Sand all the time, but Dale and I were having all the boys around to our place. And it was a, it was a, it was like a day like today, the sun was out, we were all setting up at the back, a few boys had just rocked up. And um, uh, it was like Rui, I think Rui was already there. And Rui got a phone call saying, and he, I remember he walked around the side of a house. This again, this is kind of sick. The details I remember, but and he was just like, "Boys, Tomo's been sacked," and we're like, literally, like in complete shock. Like, you know, it was it was crazy. And then we we were trying to digest everything, and a few more boys came around, and then we started to get on the phone. Well, to, literally, so this is Tomo to a T. So Tomo it was maybe like a, I'd say maybe a couple of hours later, whilst you know we most of the boys are around, we get a we get a text saying everyone everyone to my house so like we're all around at tomo's that afternoon and i think we're there until the next afternoon do you know what i mean and everyone was there so yeah it was it was, it was shocking news and yeah i'm sure tomo will tell his story one day i, I think he's tried to tell the full story at certain times <laughs> i think he got edited by uh, a few of your fellow journos in uh, a sack podcast but um yeah, extraordinary circumstances considering what we achieved and you know how much or well, what we thought of Tomo and how important he was to the footy club. 
And Ross Lyon takes over. Now, we know Ross's story, but he's appointed as a new coach. There was a list of candidates. I think he beat a total of 52 candidates for the job, including the favourite at the time, John Longmire. So goes the story anyway. What were your first impressions of Ross, and how different was he to Tomo? Uh, I knew who Ross was, uh, but I didn't have a huge amount of knowledge on his background and coaching. So it wasn't until we... You know, we went, a, a, you know, out of our way to find out what his, even his playing career, Fitzroy. <laughs> you know, it wasn't, it wasn't. A, I think a few weeks in or a few months that we find out he was a bit of a thug at Fitzroy, and <laughs> you know, all the bits of footage started to come out of him belting blokes and stuff like that. But um, I was obviously young, too young at the time to see Ross Lyon play. But um, yeah, the moment he walked in, like we, like we knew, like tactically, he was like next level. Like I've said this, Tomo. Tomo hates me saying it, but. Tomo's greatest strength is his management skills of men. And tactically, it was a simple game. Where footy was a lot simpler back then too. We had a, only a couple of things to think about. You know, we, we had a game plan of quick inside direct and our foundation, you know, of any great team was built on effort. And we had a 100% effort 100% of the time, which is never achievable. But the closer you can get to that, the better off you're going to be. So, um, but tactically, uh, Ross started to bring in these things that we'd never thought about or talked about or, you know, kind of implemented in the game. So um, we knew instantly that that was going to make us better. But then where I think where Ross's weakness was, was his management skills of us and bringing the best out in us. But, you know, smart man Ross is. He knew that was probably one of his deficiencies. And over the next, like, kind of year, year and a half, that continued to grow. And I think now it's one of his greatest strengths. Mm. So... That's where I said if you in a perfect world and a perfect coach, you'd have Grant Thomas as you know management skills and you know even, even Tomo's would go into meetings for three hours at Tomo and he'd he'd be he'd get real deep in the thought about why we did things and how things happened. It just his ability to bring the best out of us. But if we had his management skills and and Ross's tactical skills skills, you'd have you know you'd have arguably the best coach. Known to man, so um, yeah. But Ross, Ross continued to work on that side of his game, and now he's uh, you know arguably one of the, or has been one of the best coaches in the last kind of ten to twelve years. But it was quite evident from the start tactically, Ross was something we'd never seen before. Mm. We'll get into that next. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life, brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au after the break. The Saints rise again under Ross Lyon and the agonising grand final defeats that followed. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. We hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with revered St Kilda and Essendon midfielder Brendan Goddard. Well, BJ, under Ross, the 2007 season is something of a holding pattern. 2008, you lose another prelim to Hawthorne, but by Mm -hmm. 2009, you've clicked. Did you feel as a side almost invincible that season? I think you win your first 19 matches. 19 in a row, it's kind of hard to fathom now, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, it's... um... Okay, yeah, I can't remember much of 2007. It was definitely like a, a, a kind of development year in terms of a new coach. 
you know, remember 2007 where the game against Sydney when, you know, Ross Ross talks about a bit of a line in the sand for him as a coach where he put Nick Del Sano and Stephen Milne in the defence and there was like enough is enough, guys. Like he he's talked about it with us personally. He probably felt like he was kind of dancing around certain issues and mm. there were kind of festering in the team and all that, but it was like a bit of a line in the sand. So I think at the back end of 2007, we made good improvements. 2008 again, we improved. We got the finals and got beaten by far superior teams, got belted in both finals. No, lost the first one. Won the first one, lost the second. Did we make a prelim to that, mate? 2008, yep. Uh, Hawthorne. Yeah, yeah, we got belted by Hawthorne. But I think we we uh, beat Collingwood or I lost it along, beat Collingwood, then played Hawthorne. But we knew that yeah. we were still not good enough. I think we felt like we weren't good enough is my main point. And then by 2019, uh, 2009, it was actually funny. We lost the last preseason game to Port Adelaide by like 60 points or something, 70 points. So as much as we knew we were like heading in the right track, there's still this real uncertainty of what it's going to look like come the season. So, and then... I think it wasn't too convincing kind of the first few rounds, but then everything just clicked. And then like, you, I like the word where you said, do you feel invincible? Cause I think we did. Like I tried to relay this to, to players in the Essendon playing group for, for a long time there, just of, you know, the feeling of running out down the race, literally with no worries. What kind of whatsoever you look at the guy next to you, you know exactly what he's going to give and what you're going to get out in today. Like, that feeling there is like, yeah, incredible. It's mm. it's really hard to explain. Um, and even in games when you know you're not playing that well, but you know that you know if we just we just stick to this, it's going to happen. And yeah, they the team the opposition didn't matter who it was or where it was. It's they're not going to be able to keep up with this kind of thing. There's this air of confidence slash arrogance that yeah, it's really hard to explain. But that that's built through preparation and you know trusting one another, hard work. Like, you know, the way we trained, even from Tomo days, like I saw the St Kilda days, you know, we were the hardest training group that, you know, people would come into our footy club and say, you, you guys are the hardest trainers we've ever seen. Like, do you know what I mean? It was built, it started way back then, the foundations were laid with Tomo and, and Ross kind of just built on those. But, um, you know, it's, it, to get to that point, it's set up from a long way back is what I'm trying to say. It just, it just doesn't happen. It's just, yeah. it's not like, we lose by 10 goals to Port Adelaide and we win the first couple in start of 2009, something clicks. Like, it kind of felt like it did, but when you delve into it, it, it was built from a long way back. The 2009 grand final, uh, BJ, put us on the MCG if you can. It's incredibly tight. It's incredibly tense. You're up by seven points at three-quarter time, but the Cats obviously kick the only three goals of the last mm. term. I mean, how does it live on with you now? Do you feel that you were the best team that year and that the best team didn't win the premiership in 2009? Um, yeah, I think I think we were. I, I can say that pretty confidently. We felt like we were the best team. We knew we knew how Geelong how good they were. We were under no illusions. And we, I think our history would show the games we played against one another were incredible. Everyone talks about that game in round 13, is it, or 14, Eddie had? Yep. Being the best home and away game. Someone had even said footy, footy's never been the same since, or it, it hit its heights or something at that point. But I can, I can, I can see why. When thinking about back at that game and then watching it, it's, it's incredible what we were doing back then. And, so 
yeah, to answer your question, it, we did feel like we were the best team, but we knew how good Geelong were. So it was actually a bit of a blur that game because I was I was screwed physically. I I broke my nose at the start of the uh, towards the maybe middle part of the second quarter. And your collarbone. And then and then broke my collarbone at the start of the third quarter. James Kelly just got an innocuous tackle. He just kind of pulled me to rolled on top of me on kind of to my right shoulder Jeez. and I cracked my collarbone. So you were you were a real was, oil painting by the end that day, weren't you? <laughs> well, I'm not an oil painting to begin with, so um, there wasn't too much of a, you know, there wasn't much to start with. But, yeah, I, I was, I was, it was a bit of a blur. So um, I, I actually had to watch that because I don't remember a lot of that game. And I've actually had to watch it. I think I was uh, watching it the, first, the year I retired, so a couple of years ago in that summer when they were playing a, you know, great games, Fox Footy do. But I only really sat down and watched it from start to finish then. And there's like there's so many things that I just can't remember about that game that happened and how close it was and all that kind of thing. So and mainly because one, I was a bit younger, but two, because I had a couple of injuries where I was, you know, on a few drugs and jabbed up. So <laughs> everything was a little bit blurry. How many, that's a right way to phrase this, how many what-ifs live on with you from the 2010 draw the very next year, whether it be, you know, the Milne bounce, the Sam Fisher kick down the line to Maxwell when Cozzy's on his own? Mm-hmm. I mean, is it is it hard yeah. not to flash back even a decade on? Yeah, very hard. You know, everyone still wants to talk about it. We're still talking about it here. You know, it's on TV a lot. Come finals, they always play, you know replay the best finals games, grand finals. It's always on. So, um, yeah, there's, there's heaps of moments. There's some of the moments that probably us as players see that to be to, to be important. You know, spectators probably don't see. Mm. So, um, yeah, there's a lot more other little things that happen during that game that we probably see as big moments. So there's a few that you just reeled off are real obvious ones, but. Um, yeah, it's yeah, it's hard to fathom. It's and even I had a difficult time every year. Well, even before I was just envious of guys playing in grand finals. But since playing in them and not being able to win one, and now I've retired, I've, I've I find it really hard to watch grand finals. So even the other night, watching or the other week, watching Richmond win and winning their third, like my mind, I had an awkward kind of moment where I got off the couch as soon as it finished and walked off and my wife was like what, what are you doing what's what's wrong and I was like I, I can't get my head around this do you know what I mean like mm. thinking about what we did or what we didn't do what a Richmond doing or have done that we didn't do and trying to conceptualise it all in my own head and give reasons for how we didn't win it so I've done that a thousand it's not just this year it's every grand final since you know we've played in our last one teams have won flags and you know Hawthorne win three in a row and and then the only thing that I can literally land on to put my mind at ease is literally essentially about being in the right place at the right time so you know just luck we just didn't you know have things go our way they could have it could have been different in a lot of ways like we could have been two-time premierships player if you know, not just one isolated incident, but a number of things throughout those both games happen when when it's so close. It comes down to you know minuscule kind of things. So it's it's just about a time and a place. If we played two two different teams on that day, you know, we uh, 
we could have been two-time premiership players or if Geelong just didn't turn up after three-quarter time or Collingwood rolled over in that last quarter or whatever, you know what I mean? There's heaps of shot at. And, and, you know, to throw Rui under the bus too, I, I had to call Rui a, a day later and we, we were talking about it because we were both very similar in terms of personalities. I knew how he'd be thinking about it. So I rang Rui and we talked about it and tried to make sense of it all. So, and Did he's you? like, again... Uh, yeah, we could become the conclusion. We, we, you know, we, and that's why it's hard. It's still hard to swallow. Well, it's not hard to swallow in a sense because we knew that we, like, we did everything we could. There wasn't, mm. in terms of the actual game itself, but even before it, there's not too many things. Like, there's nothing that we can think of that we would have done differently because we all, not just Rui and I, I'm talking about the whole team, and the, you know, we all worked our asses off and we did everything. Guys that, you know, were average trainers before they took their, you know, they took their training to a new level and their preparation to a new level just to just to try and achieve team success like we all we all did everything we could so it's kind of easy in a sense but then it's hard just seeing other people you know get the success that we so desperately desired and never could achieve yeah the 2010 replays uh unfortunately a whitewash i mean are you thinking back on it is the group just mentally cooked i mean not just from the draw the week before but you know the 2009 loss as well, the 2008 prelim before yeah. that. I mean, it had been a big load. Yeah, yeah, exactly. People can make all the reasons why, and I've heard about some of the reasons why uh, Collingwood thought they'd won, but, yeah, they didn't have the the history of, you know, failing like we did. So, you know, we could only, we could only really play one grand final based on what, you know, what had happened previous years. So... That's why if we if we hadn't lost two thousand nine, you know I think I think two thousand ten replays a different story. I'm not saying we'd win, but we'd we'd would have a better chance. We were, we were just mentally cooked. Everyone was just fried. We we literally just put everything we had. Not to say Collingwood didn't, but we climbed the mountain. Arguably, you know, three other times and got pushed off the top, and we did it again. And we just, you know, we rolled rolled down the mountain too far to be able to get back to it. Whereas Collingwood didn't have the history of losing, and which which I think just helped them mentally. They could, you know, pick themselves up and press the restart button. We 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 that was the only difference. We were cooked. We were even training the next week. We all I think we all deep down knew it. Ross knew it. You know, there's a few other guys too that limped, not limped in, but were a little bit underdone in the first grand final, and then just to have to back it up again physically for them too it was a bit hard but it was, it was more mental than anything we were just we were mentally fried 12 months later so September 2011 not long after you'd actually lost an elimination final this time to Sydney Ross Lyon departs on a four year deal to coach Fremantle I mean I imagine it's a bit like the Grant Thomas situation years earlier and you were blindsided all over again yeah pretty much and I was I was like I was at the club nearly every day at that period in the off season because I from memory, I had uh, hip and knee surgery, so I was in at the club. So I was trying to get updates, and Ross hadn't been in, but you know, trying to find out what was going on because it was, it was started, you know, the, everyone started circling, and the rumours started to circling around. So it was, and again, but it was a complete shock because at one point, I think my last update from someone inside the club that I, you know, trust was, you know, Ross's Ross is likely to sign, and I wasn't going to call Ross personally and ask him that. It's a bit. That's a bit too far, but, um, you know, and then it was, it was literally like two days later that, no, he's, he's, he's left and he's going to Freo. So it was a complete shock. Mm. So, 
there's some things that happen, people that were involved in the club at the time that, you know, should take responsibility for it because, you know, taking you let arguably the best coach in the competition at the time just walk out the door is is uh, unfathomable. Like it just it just shouldn't happen. So we're we're all filthy, we're headless. And in shock. The replace the replacement Scotty Waters, but he he lasts only two seasons. The latter of of which just gets the five wins. What what was your relationship like with Scott? <laughs> uh, Scotty and I are all right. Yeah, we we had a common interest in golf. Um, I had my concerns, like any senior player probably would, and had played for you know eight, nine, ten seasons. New young coach, what it's going to look like, what the club you know behind the scenes looks like. Knowing all you know at that particular age too, knowing a lot of the politics now that go on in footy. Um, so I, I had my concerns, but um. You know, I felt like there was enough there to want to stay at the footy club, and then you know, I think I'm pretty pretty loyal person. So you know, I didn't have any thoughts about really leaving as such, but I had my concerns about the footy club and the direction it was heading in. But I was pretty confident, and probably still a bit naive at that stage too. That but a bit naive that things will just change and things will get better. But um, it was it was kind of obvious maybe about halfway through that first year of Scotty's that things weren't you know going as well as I think we'd all hoped and would have liked and a month before he's sacked so the next year you leave for Essendon now Scott Waters goes on the record to say that your reason for leaving is purely money related what did you mm-hmm. think of that at the time and why did you leave yeah. the Saints for Essendon yeah that, well I don't know that was more of a reflection of him wasn't it? I thought because he knew that what was happening behind the scenes, the discussions he and I had. Like this, and I've talked about this on the Stack podcast, but there's heaps of details that I, you know that you forget about. But mm. and I've said it more in recent times during you know our trade radio shows on you know SEN of the last couple of weeks that these guys going through this period they just want to be loved. And for guys that have played ten years at a footy club, I think that's just an expectation, really. So. Um, I didn't. I didn't get that feeling once whatsoever with 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 St Kilda and going through that year where I was deciding what to do with my future. So um, I felt like they were playing enough games internally just to to walk away. That I'd you know back that back me into a corner where I'd make a decision to leave and they'd leave, that have no blood on their hands. So because it's easy, it's an easy sell to the supporters and there's less kind of kick back from supporters and less coming back their way. So. Mm. Um, you know, I got told different number of things. I've told a story where Scotty and I, Scotty took me after our last exit meetings and took me to a cafe and told me that, you know, there's a, another deal coming, a four-year deal with, you know, you know, a bit more money, something that's fair and reasonable because at the time that was that was one of the factors, no doubt, because um, it's 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 important about security, especially when a, when a footy clubs and other footy clubs are showing you all the love in the world and especially... Um, security in terms of length of contract too so um these are just some of the little stories so he tell me there's another deal coming or whatever so i get get on the phone to dan richardson as soon as we walk out and said you know i just met with scotty he's told me this and this is what's going to happen and then dan goes yeah okay no worries gets on the phone to chris palkin and says well you know we haven't heard about this so what's the details and you know can we have them and he goes what, what are you talking about there's, there's no there's no new deal coming here's what it is <laughs> It's, it's not it's not moving from what it is, 
And he's like, hang on. Brennan just had a meeting with Scott. Scott's told him this. This is, he goes, well, that's, that's, that's incorrect. It's not happening. So there's a couple of things like that at the time. And I'm just like, I'm in a head spin going, how is, how is this even possible? Mm. How's the mm. senior coach told me this? And then he called the, the GM of football or list manager and he's telling it's, it's a lie. So there's a, there's a number of things. Again, I could reel off about two or three other stories and things like that. So that's where the picture became pretty clear in the end, what was going on for me. Mm. And I, oh, I didn't want it to happen. So get to a point where I've got to make a decision. And uh, I told you this story the other day that I ring Chris Pelk and myself the, the day that I have to make a decision whether I want to leave, accept St Kilda's offer, or, or I want to, you know, tell St Kilda I want to, I'm out. Essentially, I didn't tell him where I was going, but um, yeah, I rang Chris Pogue myself just to just to get that kind of assurance that I wasn't loved and I wasn't wanted. But I said, you know, just give me a fair and reasonable deal and security I want. And he says it's it's not moving. It is what it is. So, which is if you want to talk about money, it was literally it was it was twenty thousand dollars increase on what I'd been on the previous three years. Yeah, and I was a better footballer. I was about to be captain of the footy club. Uh, so none of it kind of made sense. Mm. So in terms of marketplace and what I was worth, it was it was a hell of a lot more than what they were offering. So, um, yeah, and there was another story where the footy club at the time, or certain, I won't say the footy club because they're not responsible, people inside the footy club leaked on how much the offer was from St Kilda. It was a three-year deal. It, it was like, can I mention names? Journals that write this stuff. Sure. <laughs> yeah, John Perry, and uh, he calls Dan and said, "I've just found out that you know, off the footy club that they've offered Brendan this and three-year deal at six hundred and twenty-five a year." And then like, Dan's like, "Well, I can tell you now, mate, that's incorrect." And uh, he's like, "Yeah, well, that's what they've told me." And Dan's like, "I'm telling you right now, it's incorrect. So you know, you can't." can't write it. He goes, well, I'm, I'm running with it because that's what they've told me. He's like, I'm telling you right now, it's incorrect. So truth mm-hmm. be told, the the article's in the paper the next day. So of course, it comes the, here comes the uh, the heat about Brennan being greedy and it's all about money. So that was just something that the club leaked out there just to paint a picture of me being greedy. So again, so it's Brennan's decision to leave. We've offered him a good contract. It's, 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 his, it's his choice. We've got no blood on our hands. Jeez, it's a it's a grubby time, isn't it? We've just lived through it on um on the trade period with you on trade radio as well. So we, I think we saw I'm a bit of this happening this year. Yeah, that's right, and that's why I feel for players like Adam, in in particular Adam Chawar, because he won't be able to tell his story until he retires. Out of yep. respect, I was never going to say this this stuff whilst I was playing footy. Out of respect to St Kilda, and I can talk about St Kilda now. I love St Kilda, that you know that the footy club is such, but the people involved at the time they come and go like. You know, I, and that's why I can talk about it now because there's different people. It's a totally different place, and there's different people involved at the footy club. So, um, and I wouldn't do it whilst I was playing for the respect of it. You know, St Kilda and Essendon and the players and everyone involved in the the controversy to a cause by speaking the truth. So, that's why I'm glad I can talk about it now and have talked about it since I retired. We're talking to Brendan Goddard right here on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We'll be back shortly with BJ, who gets to Essendon, but also finds himself walking into one of the biggest controversies in Australian sport. 
You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Decorated midfielder Brendan Goddard has been our guest today. Well, BJ, Essendon 2013, February that year, just a couple of months after you actually got there, the club self-reports to the Australian Sports Anti-Doping Authority over concerns about its supplements program. And then... Over a four-year period, investigations, legal proceedings, it ends up that 34 players at the club were found guilty of having used the banned peptide Thomosin Beta 4 and incurred suspensions. When when this is all raised with you now, and I'm sure it gets raised with you often, what, what's the first emotion that it stirs inside you? Um... I've never been asked that question directly. Um, the first emotion. Probably, I don't know, disappointment, frustration. Um, I don't know, kind of, not a good one. Anyway, it's, it's really hard to uh, yeah. put into words, to be honest. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. It's tough because then I start reflecting on actually what happened when you asked that and the feeling... And what that relates to, and it's it's I don't know, it's, it's staggering when you when you go back and think about what happened in the timeline and how long it was dragged out. Is yeah, it's uh, yeah, probably more frustrated more than anything. Yeah, I mean, you you saw what it did to people and the effect that it had on your, your teammates or your new teammates over time. I mean, how does it live on with you now? With with, with watching the effect that it had on a lot of those guys that, that you know, and the new club you walked into. Um, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to identify a lot of those things when you're in the moment and what was going on because things used to happen so quick and day to day. There was, you know, you couldn't actually stop and it felt like gather your thoughts to actually process what's going on. Or, you know, it's, you know, when I look back on it, it just, you know, it destroyed a number of men. So we all know about Hurdy and his struggles, but there's some guys out there that were, that, fighting at the time and probably had a long-term effect on them, you know, mentally um, that we probably didn't know about because they were hiding and hiding it and didn't want to talk about it. But, yeah, it had a huge impact on, don't worry about the footy club, you know, the footy club will, will bounce back because of the supporters and, you know, it's rich history of success and stuff. But, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the individuals that are involved in some of them, you know, have been scarred for life. While this is all kicking off, obviously, in the background, it's round four that year. You, you've got to face St Kilda at some point, and it comes in round four, your first game against the Saints. And it was, I guess it was made more memorable because you reverted to type in that post-game interview. You wear your heart on your sleeve and the emotions <laughs> came out. It was a, that must have been a rough night. Uh, yeah, rough in a sense. It was a kind of a sense of relief, really, just to get over and done with. But you can imagine... You know, going into that game, not even going in the game, but was, you know, in the, in the preseason when the AFL released the draw, the first place I look, I literally gloss over the whole thing just looking for Essence and Kilda. So, you know, and then from that moment, you know, different stages, you know, 
up until we play them, I'm just I'm just thinking about that game and what's going to be the reaction from the fans and the players. And like I was still talking to the players and everything too. So, but it's just where your mind, it's staggering where your mind wanders. But you know, I yeah, to get to that game and just to get it out of the way was a relief. But you know, that post game interview that was just that was just a, a release of so many emotions and stress and everything that you think of this this outpouring. You know, I was I was upset, but it was almost like just a a relief. It was a, the biggest relief of my life at that particular time, just to get it over and done with. And I was, I, like, I was cooked too mentally. Like, I was cramping at the start of the third quarter. And like at that particular time in my career, I was, you know, as fit as I've ever been. I knew how to deal with my body. I, you know, I'd cramped when I was 17, 18, 19. But start of the third quarter, I remember it on the bench. I'm like, why am I cramping? And I just, I'd made the admission to myself. I was like, I'm mentally, I'm just cooked. I'm done. Like, start of the third quarter. So um, it's amazing what the mind can do and the effect it has on the body. So yeah, I knew then that I was cooked and realised at that particular time of the game, during the game, that how much, uh, you know, the build-up to this game and playing the Saints, had, you know, how much of an effect it had on me. Still, I mean, it, it was proven to be the right move for you in a, in a strictly a personal sense. I mean, you, with everything going oh, on, yeah. you, you play some magnificent footy. I mean, you win your first best and fairest of your career that year with everything going on. Yeah, I was uh, pretty stiff to not win another year of the same. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, it, was, it was great. Yeah, because people said, do you regret it? I don't regret it. But, if you know, if I had a crystal ball in hindsight, I wouldn't leave St Kilda. Well, not, I wouldn't leave St Kilda. I wouldn't go to Essendon, mm. more importantly. If I knew it was going to happen, that's that's just you know every, everyone, no one would. Why would why would you do that if you knew it was going to happen? Yeah, so well, I don't regret it. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah, I live and die by the sword. I made the decision that was best for me at a particular time, my family, and my wife. So it's you know it was it was great. I wish things had been different, but I don't I don't regret the decision. And you spend the six seasons there at the Bombers, and at 33, the end of 2018, they don't offer you a new contract. I mean, you, Take us back. You weren't ready for it to end, were you? No, I wasn't. Um, and even to this day, I, was, I, I still could have played. I, I think I'm pretty. Um, you know, I learned to be really honest with myself. That's a kind of career-defining thing that I found in my footy career. That as a young kid, you make a lot of excuses for yourself. You know, and things not going well, blame others. Um, but deep down, like I made a decision. You know, after my, I reckon it was about after my second year that I'd start to be honest with myself. But, you know, look in the mirror and true assessment of yourself and where you're at. And I think there was a career defining point. So, I, I again, I, I thought I was pretty honest with myself. So, I, I could identify if it was my time was up. So, I, I truly felt that I still had plenty of good footy. So, um, mentally and physically, I was in a really good place. So, um, I, didn't, I didn't feel like it was, it was time to finish. I reckon, I reckon age. You know, and a passport and birth certificate is just—it's just, you know, doesn't mean much at the end of the day. It's how you feel physically, and I think teams and coaches and GMs and stuff that have that approach, I think, I think that's appropriate because, you know, it feels as if these guys, as soon as you turn 30, it's like you're, you're on the way out, mm. but it shouldn't be shouldn't be treated treated like that. And was there any potential olive branch at all to play on in 2019 elsewhere? Uh, I was, there was a small one I think I've talked about at Callum that we had brief discussions and met up with, you know, the great Soth up in uh, Noosa. We just happened to be both up there at the same time. That's um, his recruit. That was his recruiting season. hunting ground. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, so 
So, yeah, no, we uh, we met up, have a brief discussion, and, you know, I was pretty honest with myself then. Again, you want to talk about being honest and knew where I was at. Like I said, the soft sauce, even if you were to go down this path, they were tossing up whether to go, you know, with youth or experience and get, get myself in. But I said, I'm not sure I can do it. Like, physically, I've let myself go more than mentally. I'm behind the eight ball. Like, this is in... Um, this is in January, but we we'd started talking back in like, end of November. So I've been I've been doing some training, but I'm like I'm still behind the eight ball. I don't want to get to the club and just be be trying to catch up to the rest of the group, you know, for for ten twelve weeks, and then you know come season come the season, it's hard to get your you know keep improving your fitness because if you're playing, it's all about recovery. So I said to him, I'm not sure I can do it. So thankfully he took that decision out of my hands when we had a discussion, you know, a couple of weeks later when they all got back to training after their Christmas breaks and he sat down with Bolts and the rest of the list management crew and said they all made the decision they'd go youth because if he had asked me and said, no, look, we're keen to get you involved, I think I'd, I'd made the decision that I was done at that particular time. So mm. um, I was still torn a little bit because my pride and my ego would get involved and, you know, I, I can do this and have an impact with, this footy club and you know I didn't care that it was at a third footy club and all that kind of thing so it was more about what I could offer them and, and help them improve so yeah thankfully I didn't have to make a decision but I, I, I'd literally I, I'd made the decision that I couldn't do it I wasn't up for it physically more than anything well golf is the sporting passion now isn't it I think we're catching it just after you've got back from the driving range although I think it's always been a part of your life you might have even picked up a club at uh, the tender age of three and and didn't the old man used to? I think he might have even watered the greens at the at Toon Gabby, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're very good on your research, aren't you? Yeah, um, yeah. That's that golf's been a huge part of my life. I couldn't play it as much as I wanted to when I was younger because uh, footy, cricket, and basketball. Basketball was a year-round thing, but um, footy got to a point when I got a little bit older. It was practically a whole year-round thing when you you know training and pre-season started to kick in. <laughs> At you know year, year mid-teens, so um, loved it. They used to take me down to the, uh, bring me up to the golf in Melbourne, you know, for the Heineken Classic, and I used to love Greg Norman, Ian Baker Finch. But um, yeah, Dad, where it started at a young age, Dad, uh, Dad's parents owned the general store in a little town called Tungabi, which is about five minutes down the road from Glengarry. Uh, they only had a general store; they had a couple of fuel pumps out the front, but that was a smaller town than Glengarry. But there was a Somehow there's a public golf course, and Dad was in charge practically. Used to run the golf days there. Was GM CEO. There's a little temporary kind of uh, classroom. There's a clubhouse. There's a honesty system when you used to play. When they didn't have their Saturday comps, you put five bucks in a little yellow envelope and stick it in the letterbox. And so Dad used to water the greens and tees in his old HQ holding you. And myself and my brother used to go out there and sit in the back of the ute and jump out and hit golf balls and swim in the dam to collect all the balls. That hit hit on there in a little par three. So my love of the game kind of started started there, but mainly through dad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Australian uh, Golf yeah, so Digest manifest, it was manifested into it. Yeah. Yeah. Australian Golf Digest last year called you the celebrity swinger. I'm not sure if that's a great headline. <laughs> celebrity swinger? No, not in today's climate. Anyway, so yeah, no, that was a, a little feather in my cap, but. Um, no, yeah, it's and it's manif- what I was going to say is it's manifested into you know a love and a real real passion uh, to the mm-hmm. point where you know I see potentially my career in the golf industry not playing. People ask me that, but again, I know my limitations. 
and where I'm at. So, you know, my wife uh, gets frustrated many times. Golf's a, um, takes up a lot of time, but uh, yeah, I just, I just love it. It's you know not only playing, but it's manifest into you know golf equipment and then golf course architecture and a number of things. It's just a snowball effect, I think, when you get involved. Those yeah, that are right. involved yeah. in that deep into it understand, but it's hard to explain to others. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, love it. Okay, fantastic. Hey, Brendan Goddard, it's been great to chat today. I mean, as far as the footy was concerned, you absolutely left nothing out there. Your pursuit of success was obviously unwavering. Your two clubs were all the better for having you, and you should be proud of everything you achieved. Well done. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Sammy. Thanks for having and me. Thank Thank you for joining us also today. Uh, you've been listening to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives. Just jump online to find tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you next week to celebrate the life of another sporting icon. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91.